You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at USSC, and we are pleased to welcome Dr. Will M. Bowden to USSC Briefing Room to talk about Cold War comparisons and Ronald Reagan. Dr. N. Bowden is Executive Director and William Powers Junior Chair at the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin, and author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. Prior to that, he spent many years working on policy in DC with the National Security Council and the State Department. So, Will, at the end of this episode, I'm going to ask you to share your favorite by the numbers fact or stat about Ronald Reagan um, or your book at the end. And I've been trying to guess what it might be, but I looked forward to seeing how close or far away I am. (laughs) But before that, I'm keen to get your take on a number of things. So with the parallels that we see from the era during Reagan's presidency and today, from heightened tensions and shifting global dynamics to even looking at a Republican party in a state of major change, this discussion does feel very timely for today. So I guess with the tension between in the academic world where challenges are considered with broader scopes and perhaps broader timelines and the policy world where challenges are considered amid political realities and ever shortening timelines, this is one we all know all too well at USSC, but with your PhD in history and preeminent academic accomplishments, as well as extensive government experience, including work across the White House. You're one of America's most accomplished scholar slash practitioners. And of your many accomplishments, one includes writing the US government's national security strategy in 2006. Few responsibilities require more academic and policy insight than producing such a document. So from your unique perspective, can you give us an idea as to the value of the national security strategy document and how US grand strategy has evolved since World War II? Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm so honored to be hosted by the uh, U.S. Study Center here. Uh, And, of course, you know, your new leader, Mike Green, is a longtime friend and colleague. I I will issue the disclaimer that I'm certainly not worthy of all those accolades you were throwing at me in your introduction there, but I appreciate the warm welcome to Sydney. Uh, So the question about the value of the national security strategy and then the evolution of American uh, grand strategy overall since uh, since the the end end of World War II. I'll first start with the value of a strategy document because uh, I'll admit I had some of those same questions at the outset of the process of helping to craft the uh, what was the Bush administration's national security strategy during during the second term. And I was honored to work on that uh, alongside my colleague, Peter Fever, uh, who was a fellow scholar detailed to the National Security Council uh, staff. So I want to, in some ways, I can speak for both of us there. But what I came to appreciate uh, as the, the value of a strategy document like that were, you know, several things I'd point to. First, the mere fact of producing one forces the U.S. government uh, to think more strategically, right? So the process itself matters. Uh, Now, in this case, we are fortunate to be serving uh, President George W. Bush and a national security advisor, Steve Hadley, and then a very capable team of uh, staff colleagues on the NSC, Mike being among them, who was leading Asia policy at the time, who were inclined to think strategically as well. But but still, the very uh, fact of producing a document like that, whatever one may think of the final outcome, it forces uh, 
you know, senior policymakers to get in the room together to think about how we want to articulate our sense of America's role in the world, what our priorities are, what the main threats are that we see, how we're going to address them. Also, what are the opportunities that we may see uh, and how do these different things fit together? So it almost forces you to come up with a theory of the case about what is the nature of the world that we're in and the United States role in it in that particular one. Uh, in this case, the um, uh, we were doing it at the uh, still uh, the height of what you might what was known as the war on terrorism. Right, so this is a few years after nine eleven. There's still a very acute concern about the ongoing persistent threat of another uh, large scale mass casualty terrorist attack on the United States. Uh, we were in the midst of two hot wars in Afghanistan and Iraq at the time against that larger backdrop too, and so. Uh, the the threat of terrorism and America's response to it was kind of the governing paradigm that we are working with. And so we, you know, the strategy document forced us to uh, articulate what, um, you know, our, our longer term uh, strategy was there on, in addressing that. But this was also against the backdrop of real shifts in the global balance of power and early signs of what we're now living through now in this year 2023 but you know this is back in 2005 2006 we're working that early signs of a resurgent and somewhat hostile russia and early signs that uh, our engagement strategy with china was not bearing all the fruit that had initially been hoped of a more uh, uh, responsible stakeholder on the international scene of uh, some some political reform, some of the other improvements that we are hoping to see in China. Um, and so part of the strategy process also forced us to take a look about what, what do we see as the trend lines or our projections about where our relations with great powers like Russia and, and China are going. Another important part about producing a strategy like that is you do have to think historically. You have to try to sit your, you're not just looking at what do we think is going to happen in the future, but situate yourself in the stream and the certain continuities of the past. And so we uh, looked very much to the early Cold War, America's first debut on the global stage as uh, a, an international leader, as a new as a new superpower in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, and we self-consciously look back to parallels from that time to the one that we are in that uh in, in the early 2000s, again, times of tremendous international flux and shifts in the in the system. Um, I'll come back to that in a second, a question about the evolution of American strategy. Uh, another important part about doing a strategy document is uh, it forces you to think about the multiple audiences for it. Uh, in this case, uh, and I you know, I could give entire mini lectures on each of these audiences I want. I'm just going to rattle through them and, you know, hopefully our listeners will appreciate this. So um, the strategy is mandated by an act of Congress. And so Congress is one of the, the main audiences because they are funding American uh, national security and national strategy. They're funding our defense, our diplomacy. Uh, they're writing a lot of the, uh, the laws uh, governing, governing it. And so Congress wants to see what's the executive branch doing with, uh, with strategy. Um, what we call the broader interagency, the different cabinet departments and agencies in the United States government responsible for national security, uh, down to the uh, you know uh, the the, de the desk officers at the State Department, the analysts at CIA, uh, the uh, enlisted troops deployed on the front lines around the world. Uh, this is also a document for them. It's kind of a blueprint from their commander in chief, the president, saying. Here's what uh, my priorities for American national security are, and here's how all the different important things that you are doing uh, uh, fit into that that broader 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 strategy. So it um, it's a, a blueprint for people who may be working on an individual issue. 
U.S.-India relations, uh, U.S. U.S. trade policy, um, uh, U.S. U.S. Africa policy, uh, to understand how it may fit into fit into the bigger picture. And of course, foreign governments are an important audience for this too. Uh, you know, the main parts of the strategy were unclassified. There were some classified parts, but the main parts of it are, were unclassified. And it is a, a message to the world about how the United States sees its role and then sees the importance of its allies fitting in. And then, um, you know, it's language about uh, other states who may be emerging concerns or even, or even adversaries. You know, we had some strong language in the strategy, for example, on Iran and North, North Korea and some warnings on China, as, as I had mentioned. Um, so uh, so those, are, those are the audiences and that's the, those are the purposes of it. Uh, then uh, just briefly, as far as uh, how American grand strategy since the end of World War II has evolved, uh, I generally identify four different phases. Uh, so there's the, the Cold War phase when the main strategy strategy paradigm is containment, trying to contain any further expansion of the Soviet Union. And that goes through different iterations, but that's the, the main uh, strategic framework for about you know four decades, really. After the peaceful end of the Cold War and the collapse of Soviet communism uh, into the 1990s, we move into the second strategy of enlargement, which is where the United States was trying to uh, engage and enlarge the number of market democracies in the world um, uh, to help integrate uh, former adversaries like Russia at the time, you know, an effort to integrate them into the international system, expanding the, the G7 to the G8, for example, uh, efforts to also integrate a rising China, but still a communist power uh, into, into this broader international order. Um, we could come back to what worked and what didn't about that strategy. The third phase is uh, uh, post 9-11. It's the counterterrorism era. You know, the strategy, I would say, there is protection. The, the whole paradigm is protecting the United States from any further terrorist attacks. And then the fourth phase uh, is the one that I think we're in now, uh, started in the last five or six years ago of great power competition. And so that, you know, the, the paradigm there is, is, comp is competition. Uh, I think that at the time that each of those four strategies was developed, containment in the late 1940s, engagement in the early 1990s, uh, and so on, uh, they were considering the other options, the, the best paradigms we, we could embrace, right? And each of them had a number of successes we can point to. But one of my uh, mantras, if you will, is that in a fallen, imperfect world like, like we're in, um, there are always going to be difficult trade-offs. There's always going to be downsides. There's always, always going to be risks. There is no such thing as a perfect strategy that will exploit every opportunity and solve every problem. And every strategy... Uh, will have within it some weaknesses or deficiencies or downsides. And so we should not be utopians and think that we can limit all those, but rather those just need to need to be managed. And so my uh, critiques, if you will, of some of those strategies is not so much that it was the wrong paradigm at the time, but that uh, we did not have built into it enough um, uh, testing of those assumptions or questioning about what are new indicators where this strategy might not necessarily be be fully working until um, we had started to see some of the downside costs of it. But um, a lot of strategy is about managing problems rather than necessarily solving or fixing them. So um, anyway, I, I know I threw a lot out there, but I hope your listeners or listeners will find that uh, it's a good grist for the mill for further conversation. No, it's great. Thank you. I think it's a great thing to get a deep dive on all of that. Um, and I'm keen to even if we it's great to understand uh, both those phases and that maybe some of the different decisions they made were not inherently mistakes, but if they maybe should have had more robust questioning and, and those those strategic thinking um, imbued into the design of those strategies. But I'm keen to take a deeper dive 
um, into President Reagan in particular um, and looking very much at that Cold War to post-Cold War, um, I guess, transition and that end phase of the Cold War, really. Uh, you wrote a very excellently reviewed uh, book on Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. Can you give us an idea um, as to how his approach during the Cold War was different to his predecessors? Um, and was it just simply a matter of outspending or outlasting the Soviets? Yes. Well, this is a great segue from uh, what we were just talking about, uh, the broader you know, sweep of the different phases of American strategy, because when Reagan comes along, when he is elected in 1980 and takes office in January 1981, a big part of his presidential campaign was his critique of what he saw as the inadequacies and limits of that containment strategy. Uh, and to give some of the outlines here, um, so containment, as I mentioned earlier, had been predicated on stopping further expansion by the so by the Soviet Union, you know, keeping them, you know, somewhat contained, if you will, avoiding a hot war with them, but also not conceding even more global influence and control as they were as they were seeking. Uh, but Reagan's concern by the 1970s is, you know, to oversimplify a little bit, that containment had somewhat run its course where it had shifted into this, um, what was known as detente of the United States trying to reduce tensions with the Soviets. But Reagan saw that this really, uh, he worried that this amounted to essentially losing as slowly as possible, but that is still losing, right? And what had happened is a number of the, you know, the, the broad foreign policy expert community had come to accept the Soviet Union as a permanent fixture on the geopolitical landscape. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union had been around for you know seventy years at, or so at, at that point. Um, it appeared strong, robust, resilient. You know, we had some sense that its economy wasn't perfect, but it seemed like it could keep bumping along for for dec decades longer. And so the um, uh, you know, the governing American paradigm was like, let's just manage relations with this this rival great power. Uh, and the belief was that the Cold War was essentially a great power contest, a standoff between two strong nations, the United States and Soviet Union, that happened to be uh, have an ideological component or a battle of ideas between these two, you know, one's a democracy and one's a totalitarian, obviously. Well, Reagan uh, rejects most of those precepts and assumptions. He believes the Soviet Union is more weak and vulnerable. Uh, he does not accept it as a uh, permanent fixture on the geopolitical landscape. Um, and he reverses that equation. He sees the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas that happens to be laid on top of a great power contest. So he sees both elements there too, like others did, but he privileges that battle of ideas part. And from that, it follows that he does not see the Soviet Union as a rival nation to be managed. He sees it as a vile idea to be defeated. Uh, and he particularly wants to see the defeat and the ending of, of Soviet communism. And so he has this kind of punchy aphorism about this, his theory of the case in the Cold War is we win, they lose, right? And that's effective on the campaign trail. But I think if we take a deeper look at that, there's a much more sophisticated strategic recalculation going on there. The belief that the Cold War is not the permanent state of international relations anymore, but that it's possible for the United States and the free world to prevail. And it's also possible for the Soviet Union to, to be brought down. Uh, so that's where 
um, he, uh, you know, does start to shift away from that broader containment paradigm into more of a, a rollback one. But it's also very important to appreciate he is still committed to keeping the Cold War cold. Okay, he is terrified of nuclear war. He does not want um, a more confrontational posture to turn into a hot war between the United States and Soviet Union. He knows that that could quite literally mean the extinction of the human race, right? The complete destruction of the planet in a, you know, apocalyptic nuclear exchange. And so he devises a, excuse me, a, I think a pretty sophisticated strategy that has those two prongs of increased pressure on the Soviet system, but also diplomatic outreach of offering that, that diplomatic uh, off ramp, but he wants to negotiate from a position of strength. And that gets to finally your question about the role of his uh, military expansion, the defense buildup in this. And uh, yes, he certainly invests a lot more money in in the Pentagon, you know, uh, close to doubles their budget over the next next eight, uh, eight years of his presidency. But for Reagan, it's not just about outbuilding and outspending the Soviets, it's about outsmarting them. And with his uh, defense modernization, and that's why I always say modernization rather than just expansion or buildup, uh, he's trying to uh, invest in the next generation of weapon systems that will take advantage of American technology and be qualitatively better than anything the Soviets can deploy, rather than just trying to match them quantity for quantity, ruble for ruble, you know, ruble for dollar, uh, so on. Um, and so his goal is to lure them into an arms race that, on its new terms, they cannot compete. They cannot win uh, because it's not just about resources. It's about this entire new generation of, of advanced weapons. Um, and we could do a whole other podcast just on, on the details of that. But but for Reagan, that he wants the defense modernization to put economic pressure on the Soviets, but also to strengthen his diplomatic hand so that um, he can avoid that hot war. And instead, when the Soviets see this fearsome new advanced military the United States is deploying, uh, they will you know, feel induced into uh, constructive negotiations. So that, that's an important part to appreciate about his strategy. Wow. That's really interesting. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about there's so many things I hadn't necessarily thought of that do link quite directly with where we are right now. Even as you were talking about the assumptions that they had during the Cold War and that last stage and around it's this great power contest, but how Reagan reframed it as really a battle of ideas. Now we look at the state of geopolitical tensions, especially in this region, and the layers of economic coercion, but also, again, an era of this like great strategic power competition. How similar to or different to Reagan's era or the Cold War era do you feel we are now? Because a lot of people are making those comparisons. How similar is it? And what lessons could we take from that? Is right now a battle, is it about economics? Is it about coercion? Is it a battle of ideas? Like where is it and how similar or different is it to where we were during the Reagan years? Yes. So I'll I'll give my bottom line up front, but then listeners stay with me as I caveat and nuance it, right? My bottom line up front is I think there are more similarities than differences. And I, I will now say, I do think we are in a new cold war with, uh, you know, between China and the broader free world or the, or the West or the, you know, the, the democracies and other rival nations of the, of the Indo-Pacific. Um, however, uh, it is important to first lay out some differences, you know, uh, between the, the new cold war we're in now and the, and the first one, um, the, the main one that we always have to point to is the, um, 
ex- the profound levels of economic interdependence between the United States and China, between Australia and China, right? Between between Japan and China, um, those uh, you did not have those levels of economic interdependence in relationship between the Soviet Union and the free world dur- during the Cold War, right? So that is that is a very important distinction. A second distinction is. Uh, China does not have a comparable Warsaw Pact, right? So the Soviet Union had a, the Warsaw Pact, you know, these co- the coerced vassal states at the time of Central and Eastern Europe who were serving as a buffer, who were uh, really imperial possessions of the Soviet Union with, you know, imposed communist regimes there. But that's, you know, very much the fulcrum of a lot of the Cold War. China doesn't have any, anything comparable. Uh, um, uh, and, and another difference is China is not trying to promote uh, Xi Jinping thought as a global ideology the way that the Soviet Union was trying to promote Soviet communism as as a global ideology. Um, You know, China is not supporting armed communist revolutions around the world the way the Soviet Union was uh, was supporting them through Latin America and Africa and um, uh, and and East and East Asia for example um, however I do think that the similarities there are enough other similarities that uh, there are some lessons I think we can look to from the from the Reagan era for now and it starts with just kind of the uh, the geopolitical setting is then as now uh, we face the challenge of a nuclear-armed communist superpower on the Eurasian landmass, right? You know, before it was the Soviet Union, now it is uh, the the People's Republic of China. There's only been two times in world history that this has happened. One was the first Cold War, one one was the second one. Um, uh, Another is uh, that it is a contest that is playing out across the globe uh, as a contest for influence and is using all elements of national power, right? So there's certainly the economic dimension of the contest. Um, there's the political diplomatic one as China is jockeying for influence uh, with African countries, with Latin American countries, uh, cer- certainly, you know, here here in the, in the, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and it is still cold in terms of the United States and China are not in a hot war. Hot war right now, and we certainly want to avoid that. At, you know, almost in, at, at at all costs. Uh, so that's another similarity. And then finally, I still think that it is a battle of ideas. Uh, I you know mentioned earlier that China is not trying to promote its ideology globally in the way that the Soviet co- Soviet communism did, but just taking Xi Jinping seriously and on his own terms and looking at his words, he's very much positing this as a contest of ideas. I mean, he says. Uh, you know, his rule, starting with Xi Jinping thought, starting with uh, the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party as very central to his legitimacy as a core part of what he is trying to protect. You know, this is uh, a, a Leninist party system with the party over and above the state and, and, and the military. And as uh, you know, our our friend and colleague Aaron Friedberg of Princeton has put it before, you know, Xi Jinping's goal is to make the world safe for autocracy, right? To make the world safe for authoritarianism. Um, and and one reason why uh, he has identified the United States and our, our friends and partners as his principal adversaries is he does not like the ideas and values that, that we stand for uh, of, uh, you know, the liberal international order as it's known of, of self-determination, of, of open markets, of some, some sense of, of self, self-government. Um, so, you know, the final thought on when we drive this thread back to our discussion about assumptions, 20, 30 years ago, the prevailing American strategic assumption, which I think was probably shared here in Australia and Japan and, and elsewhere, was that um, 
you know, two two key points. One that as China reformed and modernized economically and was, you know, brought into the international economic order, that it would reform politically. Uh, and as we'd seen with the peaceful transitions from formerly communist countries to market democracies in Central and Eastern Europe, we hope that they would follow that path and that they would become uh, a more you know, a responsible stakeholder, if you will, like a more a responsible and constructive member of the international community. And second, we believe that they would, as they rose, largely be a status quo power, that they would uh, em- embrace the international order that they had benefited from so much already, uh, and that, and that uh, continued to exist. They would just be a more uh, powerful member of it. And we see now both of those assumptions were wrong. Uh, first, you know, the economic engagement and growth did not lead to political reform and better international behavior. It, it just made them, yes, it made them richer, but also made them in some ways more belligerent and aggressive. Um, and second, they are clearly now a revisionist power. Uh, they are trying to <clears throat> shift the terms of the, the international order uh, uh, where China becomes a much more dominant player and can set its new versions of, uh, of, of rules. Uh, it's certainly inimical to American interests and Australian interests and the interests of a lot of other uh, nation states in the region. Right. Thank you. I want to pick up on your point uh, in this new battle for ideas and how Xi Jinping wants to make the world safer for authoritarianism and that form of power. It's hard to hear that and not think about the ties that we see in the Russia-China relationship developing. How do you see that evolving Russia-China relationship as a factor in both the Ukraine conflict and also in Taiwan? Yeah. Yeah, this has been a the the this growing you know first condominium and now even you know partnership with you know quote no limits between Russia and China uh, is a very big story. Uh, so first to put it in historical context, the ties between Moscow and Beijing are their closest now since the 1950s. The last time we saw such you know close affinity and partnership was in you know uh, the very early days of the People's Republic of China after it had been you know supported and sponsored by the Soviet Communist uh, Communist Party in in, in the Kremlin, um, and uh, and so that right there tells us we're in you know not quite completely unprecedented times, but we've not seen this this particular geopolitical configuration in seven, 70 or eighty years, especially because historically these two countries have been more rivals, right? Um, they had not had deep deep partnerships in the past, so it's it's surprising, uh, uh, and it's. Uh, it is driven certainly in part by a shared ideology, right? A shared commitment to authoritarian rule, a shared hostility to the the market democracies of the world, um, a shared hostility to other states who do not want to be, you know, dominated by um, uh, Moscow and Beijing and, and their particular designs on on how how the how the world should work. And so, you know, some of it is perhaps shared interest that has brought them together, but it really is the. The, the, that shared shared ideology too, um, and so this is why uh, I've said another context. Um, what happens in Ukraine will be very influential on the future of what happens in the Indo Pacific and in uh, and certainly certainly in, in East Asia. Um, that's why I think you know a lot of countries uh, here in the region are watching very closely to see what happens in Ukraine. You know, as China has uh, continued with its uh, su- support for Moscow, it is invested in you know some sort of successful outcome for for Putin, Putin's aggression there. Uh, of course, the Ukrainian resistance and the way it's galvanized uh, Western support in turn has been watched very closely by Taiwan, I know. Um, and and of course, uh, by Beijing as well, as they, uh, as they're 
you know, assessing the future of the the, the cross-strait relationship and uh, certainly the future of some sort of uh, uh, autonomy and self self determination for for, for Taiwan. Um, uh, and then in turn, uh, were were Putin to prevail in in Ukraine, I think that would uh, very likely not be the end of the end of his aggression. It would put a lot of the rest of Europe at some risk of where he might turn next, maybe one of the Baltic states or Moldova. And insofar as the European Union is, by some measures, China's largest trading partner, uh, insofar as the United States and Australia and Japan hope that our European friends and allies will be important partners for us in countering China, uh, if we leave a defeated or festering uh, uh, a conflict in either a defeated Ukraine or a uh, a frozen conflict there in Ukraine in their backyard and Putin's aggression and somehow seems to pay off, uh, that will certainly diminish Europe's appetite to partner with us uh, here in the, the Indo-Pacific on the challenge of China. So as I've said before, you cannot hermetically seal off one region of the world from others. Uh, and we cannot... Um, uh, treat the the Indo-Pacific as completely isolated from what is happening in Ukraine. Of course, um, uh, uh, Prime Minister Kishida in Japan has been very, very eloquent on this, saying, you know, what happens in Ukraine today will be happening in Asia tomorrow. Great. Um, very fascinating to hear about and think about these very real salient issues. And I'm just thinking it, we're in the context of a lot of big political announcements happening in the Republican Party at the moment. And as someone who's worked both in a Republican White House and with Republicans in Congress, and you've briefed a number of high-profile Republican politicians. Where do you see the Republican Party? Where do you think it's headed in terms of both foreign policy? But then I'm keen to get your thoughts on it uh, just more broadly going into the 2024 election and beyond as well. But I think if we pick up, if we look at China, if we look at Ukraine, and there's a lot of testing of this resolve, where do you think it's moving in your understanding of the Republican Party at the moment? Yes, boy, a, a big, big question there. And I, um, as I was saying to a colleague the other day, uh, this is currently one of the most uh, uncertain kind of influx uh, political landscapes I've lived through in, in, in my lifetime, um, <clears throat> both within the Republican Party, uh, but also even, you know, thinking about the broader 2024 uh, election landscape. So uh, I, I cannot sit here and make any predictions. Whatever I predict, I'm sure will somehow be wrong. It's just very uncertain. But on foreign policy, the uh, Republican party is going through a uh, very noisy, messy, but important internal debate about uh, what is its, actually I'll even say what's our, I'm, I'm a Republican, uh, stance on foreign policy. Now, the historian in me can point out that uh, this has been something of a repeated cycle, right? I could go back, I won't give a lengthy disquisition on this, but I could go back to uh, the, the earlier tur turn of the century, right? The 1890s, early, you know, 1900s, early 1900s, 1910s, and trace out that almost like clockwork, every 20 to 30 years since then, there has been a, a bigger internal debate in the Republican Party <clears throat> to oversimplify roughly between the more internationalist-minded wing that sees an important role for the United States on the global stage, exercising international leadership, uh, projecting power, engaging with allies, so forth. And the more, um, you know, there's different labels for this, isolationist, nationalist, uh, unilateralist, right, um, uh, uh, segment of the party, which uh, prefers to focus more on America's needs at home, are is more suspicious of 
uh, engagement and leadership abroad and so on. Obviously, I'm speaking in generalities here, but we could we could go into a lot of detail. So, so in that sense, uh, we're we're living through one of those new cycles. I do hope that readers of my book on Reagan's foreign policy will see it not just as an interesting historical account, but also uh, an account of a recent, very successful Republican president who was committed to allies, to promotion of human rights and democracy in an open trading order, to international leadership, uh, to standing firm against a uh, an authoritarian foe. Um, who believed in you know more you know open open engagement in the world certainly was looking out for America's interests too right and was actually quite prudential and cautious about the use of force you know Reagan was not trying to go around starting new hot hot wars in the world uh, but really believed in that integration of military power and, and, and diplomacy and I think that even though he was a product of his times. I said, you know, we're not living through those identical times again, that there are enough enduring principles there that, um, you know, I, I hope it can be something that uh, the current generation of Republicans looks to and say, all right, well, the, those policies seemed, seemed to work out pr- pretty well. They weren't, they weren't perfect. They seemed to work out pretty well. And so when, um, you know, today's Republican voters are, are thinking about this, I think that a lot of them are feeling somewhat whipsawed, right? There's certainly some, uh, discouragement, understandably so, over the uh, unhappy outcomes in Afghanistan and Iraq and questions about uh, the tremendous blood and treasure the United States spent there. But also, I think there's an awareness of uh, the growing threat from China and certainly from a, from Russian aggression and a realization, well, we, uh, we cannot just sit back behind the uh, you know the false security of our hemispheric repose, if you will, right? Um, that, as Reagan would often say, we uh, we have our troops stationed over here in, in Europe because we know we need to meet threats over here before they come come to our shores. I'm para- paraphrasing there there a little bit. So uh, I can understand at one level maybe the the appeal of withdrawing or disengaging from the world or not wanting to spend as much in the military or be as devoted to allies as, as we do. I understand some of the political appeal of that. But when you consider what that leads to, when you consider the vulnerability it puts the United States in, when you consider um, the potential costs and risks it bears, uh, I certainly hope my fellow Republicans will come around to seeing the importance of an internationalist wing again. You know, the main proponent of the more isolationist one, of course, is, is Donald Trump, who certainly has his devoted followers. But without going into all the others, it seems like most of the other uh, likely or declared Republican candidates have some sort of broader commitment to internationalism and and that that Reagan legacy. Uh, One of my favorite things when I'm talking to a historian is I can always remind you that the state you find yourself in right now is not unique. It's happened before and you can point to some time in history. History is often cyclical and that context could really help you have a better understanding of where you are now. And I find that helpful even if we look at the Republican Party and all the questions at the moment. It's nice to know, oh, they've been here before. This is not unprecedented. I'll be interested to see where it goes next. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'm keen to get by the numbers, fact or stat from you related to either President Reagan or your book that's out. Do you want to tell us what you chose for your by the numbers fact? Sure. The number I'm going to pick is zero. Uh, And I will tell you why. Zero is the number of intermediate range nuclear weapons that the United States and Soviet Union possessed after Reagan and Gorbachev uh, negotiated and signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And, and I bring this up because it is really one of Reagan's signature accomplishments. 
And it still is the only treaty in history that abolished an entire class of nuclear weapons. And the intermediate range, without getting too technical, the intermediate range nuclear weapons were particularly dangerous and destabilizing uh, because of their short flight uh, flight time until they would hit targets uh, because of their mobile nature. Um, and uh, when the Soviets had deployed theirs, uh, both in um, targeting most of the capitals of Western Europe, but also targeting most of our allied and partner capitals in Asia, right? Targeting Tokyo, targeting Seoul, targeting you know Be- Beijing at the time, it was absolutely terrifying. And uh, so when President Reagan then deployed America's intermediate range nuclear missiles uh, to counter those, it was uh, a very frightening moment in the Cold War. People thought, you know, it was a, it's in some ways, we came as close to nuclear war then as we hit since we since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, uh, but Reagan did that as part of his bigger diplomatic vision to eventually eliminate all those weapons. Um, and he knew that you you first needed to threaten to throw a big punch to create the conditions for diplomacy, but for, certainly for his ultimate vision of reducing, even eliminating the threat of nuclear war. And so the fact that um, uh, he and Gorbachev, the United States and Soviet Union, were able to get to zero uh, confounded all the critics and skeptics. It, it remains one of the most you know remarkable diplomatic achievements, I think, in, in American and world history. So that is my number for you, zero. Fascinating. Thanks. I learned something and I didn't realize that, but that's quite exceptional. I thought you might do something about um, Ronald Reagan's sweeping victory in his second presidential campaign, which was also quite remarkable by the numbers. Um, yeah. Oh, there's a lot of other numbers I could have given you or, or the number of words I had to cut from the first uh, draft of the manuscript to get the book down to size. So yes. But I think I think zero is the one that best captures that part of his his legacy. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed getting to look into these issues, um, understand more about the topic and really how then we can apply those lessons for today. I'm leaving feeling more optimistic and hopeful, and I really appreciate that. So thank you very much. Thanks. I very much enjoyed it. As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. We have our technology and security podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammondary. USSC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USSC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. Recent episodes include our interview with Qantas CEO Alan Joyce in discussion with former US Ambassador John Barry, our researcher responses to the August report, and our panel discussion with the cast of Hamilton, Australia. You can find these on our website, ussc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts.